Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Man, what an awesome thing to be able to sing out the praises of God this morning and just to know that we serve a risen King, a risen Savior, and uh, we're kind of backtracking from that idea that He's alive and He's risen to today where we'll be looking at the idea that Jesus died for us. And so if you're new with us, we have been traveling through the Gospel of Luke for the last several months, since Christmas, in fact. We started out with this journey at the cradle of Christ, and we're leading now to the cross of Jesus. Traditionally, if you were to come on Palm Sunday, which today is, you would hear a message about Jesus entering into Jerusalem and the triumphal entry uh, at that juncture of his life. Uh, We covered that about three weeks ago. It gave us an opportunity as we've been journeying through this book to not only see Jesus entering in as a triumphant king, but then to see what happened in the last week of Jesus's life. And so the last couple of Sundays, we've been looking at what were the things that took place in Jesus' life during this Passover week. And then that leads us to today with picking up the story just where we left off last week. So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 22, and we're going to continue in this journey of seeing where Jesus, who's now been arrested and taken to an illegal trial that happened at night with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel, has tried Jesus. They've pronounced him guilty in this illegal evening and nighttime uh, trial, but now that they've found him to be guilty, they have to have a legitimate trial which in Jewish law and Jewish culture can only take place during the day. And so that's where we pick up this morning. Luke chapter 22, start in verse 66. Luke writes and says, At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you're the Messiah, they said, tell us. And Jesus answered, Even if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. So now they've already decided in this nighttime illegal trial that they're going to accuse Jesus of several things. They're going to pronounce him guilty. They just need the help of Rome to convict him and to put him to death. But now that they have this version of a legal trial, it's just something that they put in place for a show. And as they ask Jesus this question, they go, so tell us if you're the Messiah or not. They haven't been able to prove anything all night long. They've had false testimonies that have been presented all night long. Jesus has been unwilling to speak to them. He's not willing to answer any charges that are brought against him because they're all false charges anyway. But now in this version of the trial, they go, if you're the son of God, just tell us. And Jesus kind of in a veiled way says, well, you say that I am. And then what's his next response? But from now on, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father. And in this moment, he's picking up some language from the the book of Daniel, where he talks about the Son of Man and seated at the right hand of the Father. And it's a way of saying that he has authority with God the Father. And they recognize this. Jesus is basically saying, you're putting me on trial now. But there's a day that's going to come where the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of God and he will come and pronounce judgment against you. 
And so in this moment, they have this thing that they hear that we don't always hear. They go, well, what is there any reason to keep asking? You've heard it yourself. He's spoken it with his own lips. They hear Jesus saying, yes, I'm the Messiah. Yes, I'm the Son of God. And to them, that's blasphemy. It's reason for death. So what they do next is they're going to take Jesus and they're going to move him on to a next form of a trial. Verse chapter, starting chapter 23, verse 1, it says, Then the whole assembly rose and they led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar. And he claims to be a Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea in his teaching. And he started in Galilee and he's come all the way here. And on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when they learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time, he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. And then Herod, with his soldiers, ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. And that day Herod and Pilate became friends, because uh, before this they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priest, the rulers of the people, and he said to him, You brought me this man as one who was inciting a people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. And wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time, he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found him in no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one the people asked for, and he surrendered Jesus to their will. So I want us to stop here for just a minute, because in this we see all of the things that Jesus goes through in these next forms of trials that he faces Jesus is led to Pilate. You have to remember that just the night before he had celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. You have to imagine that Pilate is not excited to have to host the Jewish leaders and to have this trial at this moment. It's the season of Passover. The city of Jerusalem has swelled in population. There are potentially one to two million people that are in and around Jerusalem during this time. And for Pilate, his main objective is just to keep the peace when all of these people are around the city. Pilate's already in hot water with Caesar. There are things within the Roman government that he's not in good standing about. And so his job is to just keep the peace so that there's no uprising. There's nothing that's happening. But if you can imagine being interfered with on the beginning of a holiday weekend, that's basically what Pilate's facing here. 
Now, Pilate's not Jewish and he's not celebrating Passover, but to him and to the rest of the Jewish community, this is a high and holy time and this is a season that's a celebration. There's not supposed to be any real work done at this point in time. So when the religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate first thing in the morning, you have to believe that Pilate's a little bit annoyed. Right? And so when they have Jesus in front of him, they start bringing up these charges. Here's a guy that's, that's leading the people astray. He's telling people not to pay taxes to Caesar. And oh, by the way, he's also claiming to be a king. And these are things that can get you in hot water with Rome. But Pilate just asks him, are you, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers again like he did to the religious leaders. Well, that's what you say. You say that I am. And then I love this. Pilate just immediately goes, no, I'm done with this guy. We're not doing this today, guys. Uh, I don't find any reason for faulting him. Let's just have him beaten and I'll release him. Like he doesn't want to do anything with this. He wants nothing to do with Jesus. He wants nothing to do with the religious leaders and their issues. But they continue to bring these issues up. No, you've got to do something about this guy. He's been coming all the way from Galilee, and now he's here. And all along the way, he's been subverting Rome and and bringing up uh, issues before the people that are causing them to want to rebel against Rome. And and he's claiming to be a king. And all of a sudden, there's something in that statement that Pilate hears that he goes, oh, this is going to get me off the hook. Did you say he's a Galilean? Oh, that's good news. Galilee is Herod's territory. And Herod happens to be in the city today. Let's just send Jesus to Herod. And so that's what they do. He wants to pass the buck. He wants to get this off of his plate. He goes, you send Jesus to Herod. Let Herod deal deal with him. Herod's got some rule and some responsibility and some reign over the area of Galilee. And he's here. Herod was half Jewish, half Roman. So he goes, let's send him to Herod and let Herod deal with this problem. The problem is off my plate now. So that's exactly what they do. They send him to Herod. And guess what? Herod's excited to see Jesus. Now, if you know anything about the story already of Herod and what he's been involved in, Herod has put Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, to death already. It's under Herod's responsibility that John the Baptist has been beheaded. And so when Jesus comes in, he already knows, and he's called this guy a fox. Right? And so when he sees Jesus, though, he's heard about Jesus and what Jesus has been doing all around Galilee. And it says that he really wants Jesus to perform for him. He's hoping that Jesus will perform a miracle. Hey, Jesus, come in and just entertain me. I want to see you do something. And it says he just plied him with questions. He just kept badgering him and trying to get Jesus to come out and do something amazing that would blow his mind. He wants to be entertained. And Jesus won't do anything Jesus never even speaks to Herod. He just stands there silently. And all of a sudden, Herod and his guards, they start mocking Jesus. They put a a robe on Jesus. And they dress him up like a king. They're proclaiming to be a king, so we're going to make you look like one. And then Herod gets tired of the whole deal, and he just sends him back to Pilate. So now Pilate's got to deal with this issue again. And as soon as he sees Jesus, there's two more proclamations. This guy has done nothing wrong. He's innocent, and there's no reason to put him to death. But Pilate is a a mean guy. He keeps saying, even though there's nothing wrong with this guy, I'll just have him scourged and beaten and then sent away. He's still going to have Jesus tortured, even though there's no basis for a charge against him. And so when they get to this moment, 
Two more times he, pro- he pronounces him innocent. And so when we talk in our culture as Christians and tell people, hey, we believe that Jesus is the innocent son of God. He's the lamb of God. There was no sin in him. There was no fault in him. And there's people who will say to us, how can you claim those things? How can you say that there was a man who had no sin, who was completely righteous, completely innocent? None of us are. You have to believe if you're going to make those proclamations that Jesus is the son of God. And yet, not from our lips, but from Pilate's lips. Pilate will three times declare he's an innocent man. There's no fault in him. There's no basis for a charge here. There's no reason you should do anything to this guy. And yet, as he says these things and he makes these proclamations, the crowds start chanting out, we want someone else. We want this guy crucified. And so Pilate and other gospels tell us this, that Pilate has something that he does during the Passover. It's a tradition of his as a Roman authority to show goodwill to the Jewish people who are under Roman occupation. That at Passover, it's become his custom to release one of the prisoners. And so as the people cry out, let's crucify Jesus, we want Barabbas. Then Pilate immediately goes, hey, this is the way I can deal with this. Because Barabbas, the man that they're asking for, he's an insurrectionist. He's a murderer. And yet Jesus is innocent. So let's put these two guys on stage right beside each other and let's let the crowds decide who we're going to release. This innocent man, Jesus, or this murder and insurrectionist, Barabbas. And I think maybe in the back of Pilate's mind, he assumed that the people would just go, oh yeah, when you put them side by side like that, we're going to choose Jesus, right? Like he just looks innocent compared to Barabbas. But that's not what we find. That's not what takes place at all. Instead, the crowds start chanting, crucify Jesus, give us Barabbas. Now, if you've gone to church any measure of time, you've probably heard before that uh, when we talked about Palm Sunday on the week that Jesus came into Jerusalem, that the crowds chanted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That they're crying out that he's the king who's come in the name of the Lord. But by Friday, they've turned their backs on him and they're shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. And there's been this idea and this thought among Christianity and among Christians that the same crowd who, sanded, uh, who chanted Hosanna on Sunday are crowding, uh, shouting, crucify him on Friday. I don't know if that's 100% accurate to say. Uh, We do have the Passover celebration that's going on. And so by and large, most people who have probably been following Jesus most of the week are in their homes and celebrating Passover with their families. There's a really strong chance that the crowd who's here in Pilate's home has been brought here by the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They're very pro the religious leaders and very anti-Jesus. More than likely, this is a crowd that's been paid to be here on this morning. And that they're here for the reason of being stirred up to get Pilate to do what the Sanhedrin desires. And so as they shout out, crucify him, Pilate all of a sudden realizes he's in trouble. He thought he was going to get Jesus off the hook, but instead he ends up putting Barabbas in a place where he's going to be set free. And there's a couple of ironic things that take place here when you think about Barabbas. Number one... The things that Jesus had been accused of, he's an insurrectionist, he's trying to raise up people against Rome, he's trying to tell people not to pay their taxes, he's got crowds stirred up, he's coming in to be king and to take over, 
He's going to lead a rebellion and insurrection. That's what they said about Jesus. But with Barabbas, that's literally what he had done. Barabbas was a zealot. And he had committed murder. And he had tried to lead a rebellion against Rome. And he had been stopped and imprisoned. And so you put Barabbas and Jesus side by side and you go, which one of these men really is an insurrectionist? Well, it's Barabbas. The irony that they're going to release someone who is, has done exactly what they're claiming Jesus has done. The Pharisees are really loving this. Right? The second thing that's ironic about this is just Barabbas' name. Barabbas, in Jewish terms, when you talk about Bar, it's the way of saying of the Father. And so when we would say Jesus, son of Joseph, or Jesus, Bar, Joseph, he's Jesus, the son of Joseph, or you would just use that, that term bar as a way of saying son of. So here's Barabbas, the son of Abba, the father. Barabbas' name quite literally means he's the son of the father. And so you've got him standing on one side of the podium and Jesus standing on the other, the literal son of God, the one who's been sent from the father to redeem us and set us free. And yet Barabbas is going to be released and Jesus is going to be taken and crucified. And when we pick up the story in verse 28, it says, As soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. And you go, why does does he have to do that? Traditionally, the person who's going to be crucified carries his own cross. And he has to carry it to the place where they're going to crucify him. What we don't see in Luke's gospel that we see in other gospels is that Pilate carries through with his threats. That after they accuse Jesus and they uh, say that he's going to go off to be crucified, Pilate has him whipped and scourged and flogged. And so Jesus has endured a beating that was brutal in nature. In fact, historically, we're told that a lot of people, before they would go to be crucified, they wouldn't survive the beating that the Roman soldiers gave to them. They would die on the whipping post. And so Jesus has had his back flayed open. They would whip him with a, a whip of nine tails or a cat of nine tails. A wooden bar that had nine lashes on it of, of leather. And on the end of the leather strips, there were bone and metal and different items that they would use to, to whip into someone's skin. And most often what it would do, those things would lash into your skin and grab a hold and the Roman soldiers would set it like a fish hook and then they would rip it out. And they would beat someone like that over and over and over again until you were just a bloody mess. And so when Jesus goes out to carry his cross, he continually falls under the weight of the cross. Other gospels tell us that there's times where Jesus stumbles and falls under the weight of the cross trying to carry it. So that's why they grab Simon and they put the cross on him and they make him carry the cross for Jesus. And it says this in verse 27, a large number of people following him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? And two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. 
When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals hurled, uh, hung there, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. And so we see Jesus go to the cross, to this moment of crucifixion. And the cross that Jesus endures, the crucifixion that he endures, accomplishes for us everything that God had intended it to accomplish. In fact, from the very moment that Jesus is nailed to the cross, more than likely what they would do is take the cross beam that he had been carrying, they would attach it to the post that they were going to, to raise him up on. And then they would stretch out his hands and drive spikes through his hands onto that beam. And as they're crucifying him with the, beam, or the spikes in his hands and his, in his wrist and through his feet, he's crying out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. The language, there's a way that you can look at this in the Greek that says that he says this over and over as they nail one hand. Father, forgive them they don't know what they're doing as they nail another hand. Father, forgive them they don't know what they're doing. As they drive nails in his feet, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The cross of Jesus is the mode of forgiveness that comes to every one of us. I can tell you that if I were being crucified, that's not what I would be saying. I was praying this weekend and just going, Jesus, it's good that you are God and we're crucified. Because I would have asked for the angels to come and to take me off the cross. I would have looked for a way to save myself. I would have found a way to get out of that. But Jesus had resolved himself the night before in prayer. He had prayed, Father, if there's any way that I can escape this moment, find another way, but not my will, but let your will be done. Jesus has resigned himself to the will of the Father. This is the plan. This is what is supposed to happen. And we look at things like this and we go, but how is that fair? How's it fair that an innocent, righteous man, the only person who ever lived on planet Earth who was completely innocent, completely righteous, would be the one that found himself on the cross? How's that fair? And the answer is, it's not fair. And we should be thankful that God doesn't deal with us in fairness. We should be thankful that God is just and merciful. And then instead of being fair, what fair deserves, if you want fair, then you should be the one on the cross. 
If you want fair, if I want fair, we should be the one that bear the weight of God's wrath. Then we should be the ones that have to pay for the penalties of our sins. But God in his justice placed all of the sin of humanity on his son. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the wrath of God is being poured out on him. And he's crying and proclaiming, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus in this moment, I don't think, is just talking about the Roman soldiers and the Pharisees. I think he's talking about us too. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, his church was in mind. When Jesus Christ, Father, forgive them, he had the idea in mind that there would be a movement that would follow this, that would, we would be attached to, that would allow us to have our sins forgiven so that we can also forgive others. That Jesus in this moment is forgiving us as much as he's forgiving the people all around him. But the people are sneering at him. They're mocking him. They're hurling insults at him. Even one of the criminals on the cross that's hung beside him says, aren't you the Messiah? So save yourself and us. Get us out of here. And then the other guy who's there with him rebukes him. says, don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence, we're punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. So this guy gets it. He's like, this is fair for us. This is a just punishment for us. But he's innocent. And I love this. He just looks at Jesus. And you've got to remember, as they're hanging on the cross, we read these words and we just read them like we're talking to each other and like there's dialogue that's going on. But you have to understand what crucifixion did. And if you're not familiar with this form of brutality, when they would nail someone to the cross and put their hands, wrists with nails in them and their feet with nails in them, you would hang on the weight of those wrists which were driven through nerves. They would be excruciating. In fact, the reason we use the word excruciating, that word was discovered and was utilized for the first time when it came to crucifixion. There was no word barbaric enough to describe what people experienced during crucifixion that they invented a new word, excruciating. And so this excruciating thing that you're hanging on the weight of your wrist with nails through the nerves in your wrists... And if you wanted to speak, what would happen to your, your chest would stretch out. You would be hanging with the weight on your wrist. And if you wanted to say something or take a breath, you would have to push up on your feet. There would be a little bar that your feet were standing on with nails driven through your feet. And to get any breath or to be able to speak, you'd have to, to push up and inhale and then say something. It was horrific to watch someone just try to breathe and speak. So when Jesus proclaims things from the cross, it's important for us to hear them because what he says is powerful. He's being intentional about these things. And when this man asks Jesus, hey, I'm justly convicted, but you're innocent. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus raises up on his feet and he says, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. And this is so beautiful because for us, this is the point of the cross. The cross tells us that no one is outside of the realm of forgiveness. The cross tells us that no matter what you've done in your past, Jesus forgives it. The cross tells us that on your worst day, that Jesus still finds the way to love you. And when this man is crucified beside Jesus... And he's in the same excruciating pain that Jesus is enduring. 
he pushes up on his feet and says, forgive me and welcome me into your kingdom. And Jesus doesn't look at him and go, well, you know what? You haven't studied the Torah and I don't think I've ever seen you in synagogue with the other guys on, on the Sabbath and, and you've been pretty bad. I mean, you're an insurrectionist probably too and, and you're a criminal. There's a reason you're here on the cross and what you've done is too bad. It can't be forgiven. I'm sorry, but you know, there's gonna be, there would have to be another way. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, this is the way. You don't have to have all of your theology figured out. You don't have to get your life in order. You don't have to do anything before you come to Jesus. You just come to him guilty and you proclaim your guilt and you acknowledge his innocence and you say, would you accept me? And Jesus will say, absolutely. You're forgiven. You're going to be with me in paradise with my father. The way has been made through the cross of Christ. So I don't know what you've done. I don't know if you're someone sitting here today that's had this thought, God could never forgive me. Jesus could never forgive me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've experienced. None of that matters. The power of the cross is that it eliminates all of our mess. And it gives us freedom and wholeness and righteousness with God. In fact, God clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And so we see Jesus in this moment offer forgiveness to this man. And then Luke tells us some other things that are taking place away from this scene. He goes to another location, in fact. It's about noon. Darkness covers the whole land until about three in the afternoon for the sun had stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This idea that the curtain was torn in two, other gospel passages will talk about this and specifically say it was torn from top to bottom. And you go, why is this an important note? I mean, remember, Luke is a doctor and a historian. And yet of all the gospels, Luke does the least to really describe crucifixion. But when it comes to this, he wants us to know what takes place with this curtain in the temple. You go, why is that such a big deal? What's the significance of knowing that? And here's the significance of it. The curtain in the temple was only allowed to have one person enter into it. It's where the presence of God resided. And once a year, the high priest could go in behind that curtain and bring a blood offering, a sacrifice to have the sins of the people forgiven. And it would take place on this Passover day. And it would take place at three in the afternoon, the time of the perpetual sacrifice. And as the high priest would enter into the, to the veiled area and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of God, if he turned around and looked, the veil behind him was split in two. And we're told that it's from top to bottom because it signifies that God had done this. This wasn't an act of man. And so really what this is telling us is that Jesus and his cross has provided a way. We no longer have to have one high priest once a year go in on our behalf and offer sacrifices to God. Jesus has become our high priest. And the work that he's done on the cross gives all of us access to God. All of us have access to the throne room of God, to the mercy seat of God. That none of us are eliminated from being in the presence of God himself. And so when Jesus cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he's made the way for us in to the presence of God. 
Other gospels say that Jesus' last words are, it is finished. It's done. The Greek word there is tetelestai. It was a term that they were familiar with. You would write it on something if you had a debt and you paid your debt, they would give you a ticket that had tetelestai written on it. It's finished. The debt's paid. And so when Jesus says those words, it's finished, everybody that heard him would have acknowledged that and, and tied that to the debt that is owed. And our debt that we owe to God is punishment for our sins. The wages of sin, what we earn for our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus paid the debt that you and I owed. That's the beauty of this. Then we move on. Verse 47 says, the centurion who had been at the foot of the cross, seeing what had happened, praised God, and he said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. So Joseph is somebody who's part of the Sanhedrin, the council, the religious ruling group. But we're told here he had not consented to what they wanted to do. Joseph had a different opinion about what should happen with Jesus. But he had been in the minority. And so Joseph now goes to Pilate. It says he came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. So going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. So the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and they prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. There's a couple of things that I want to point out here, and then we're going to finish up this morning. Number one is that when Joseph goes to Pilate and asks for Jesus' body, Pilate, in other Gospels, we're told that Pilate's actually surprised that Jesus is already dead. It happened rather quickly. Crucifixion could be drawn out and take a long time. In fact, if they wanted it to be shortened, they would come by and they would break the criminal's legs so they couldn't push up and breathe anymore. They would just suffocate. But Jesus had already died. And so Pilate allows Joseph to have the body of Jesus. They take him off of the cross. They wrap him in linens. And it says that they took him to a tomb that had never been used. This is fulfillment of prophecy, that he was laid in a garden tomb among the rich. And so Joseph, as a ruling member of the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish council, takes him to this tomb that's his. And he puts Jesus' body in it. And Luke gives us the details that the women who had come from Galilee followed Joseph. They saw the tomb and know how his body was laid in it. Luke tells us that. This is a little bit of a way for us to have some, um, some ways of knowing that that the women on the the morning of the resurrection didn't go to the wrong place. Luke's basically saying they saw where Jesus' body was, and when they go back on Sunday for the preparation of that, or on the Sabbath, the first day, then they go to the right place. They know where Jesus has been. So they're not in the wrong area and going, oh, the tomb was empty because nobody was ever there. They go to the right location. But then I love this, what they say about the women and the other people. It says, then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. And so Jesus was taken off of the cross right before dusk, heading into the Sabbath. It was a time that no work was allowed to be done, so you had no 
other option but to go into rest. That was commanded for the Jewish people. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. It's a day to rest. But I'm sure it was an anxious resting. Like they can't do anything, but they're full of anxiety, knowing that what they've seen the day before of Jesus being crucified and dead. And now they're planning for the next day when they're going to go back and they're going to anoint his body with oils and spices and perfumes for his burial. But it says that they rested in obedience to the command. And that word this week really stuck out to me because this is what Jesus has accomplished for us. That we join his rest. That because of the crucifixion, because Jesus died, because he was buried, and because he rises again, we are at rest and at peace. There's no more striving for salvation. There's no more keeping the law in order to earn your way with God. There's no more doing anything to say, I can be good enough. I can earn it. I have to strive for it. I have to gain it myself. Christianity says that we can't do anything to get to God. God came to us. He made a way by coming to us and giving his life as a sacrifice to allow us access to God so that we can just simply rest in his forgiveness. You're given permission to just rest in Jesus because he died, because he was laid in a tomb, and because he rose again, we can be at peace. There's no more striving. There's no more struggle. We're at peace with God through the sacrifice of Jesus. This is what the cross has accomplished for us. This is a beautiful, horrific picture. And it moves us to ask the question, am I at rest with God? Or do I still find myself struggling with God, wrestling with God, trying to, to earn my way to Him, trying to do what I can to get His approval? And it's full of strife and striving. Or are you at peace and rest because you've invited Jesus to come into your life? And you've said, like the criminal that was crucified beside Him, I'm guilty. It would be just for God to punish me. But I see Jesus and Him crucified. And I'll ask Him, can I come into your kingdom? And Jesus will say, yes. You're welcome here. And so today, my challenge to you as we close, I'm going to ask MK to come back up. We're going to sing one last song together just to spend some time reflecting this morning. But is ask yourself, have you allowed the work of the cross to bring you to a place of rest before him? Are you at peace with God? Or do you think you've got to get your life straightened out? You've got to get everything fixed. You've got to be certain level of, of theological expert before you can come to God. None of that matters. God does not ask us to clean ourselves up before we come to him. He asks us to come to him in our wretchedness, in our filth, in our sin, and let the blood of Jesus cleanse us. That's the only way you get in with the Father. It's not through what you do, but by allowing Jesus to do the work of cleansing you. And so this morning, if that's not true of you, if you would find yourself 
in this moment where you feel like you're, you've got anxiety between you and God. There's wrestling between you and God. You're, you're trying to be your savior instead of just taking a breath, telling Jesus thank you for what he accomplished on the cross and receiving his forgiveness for your sins. You can be at peace with God today. You can find rest in him. You can have your sins forgiven. And you could find yourself in a place where God does a work in you to radically transform you. Because the next step for us as believers, once we place our faith in Jesus, Jesus calls us his disciples. And a disciple is someone who, who knows Jesus, is following him, is being changed by him, and is on mission with him. So you come to Jesus just as you are. But he never wants to leave us that way. The beauty of the cross is that it's transformative. It gives us hope to have our lives rearranged, to be made more like Jesus himself, so that we can say, I used to be a person under judgment, worthy of a just punishment, but now I'm a person under grace. My heart's been forgiven. My past has been wiped clean. And I have hope for my future. And so today, if you want to surrender your life to Jesus, it's just as simple as saying what the thief on the cross did. Just remember me. Remember me when I come into your kingdom. When you go into your kingdom, bring me with you. If you can pray and ask Jesus in this moment to say, just, I know I'm innocent. I know I'm guilty and I know you're innocent. Forgive me and cleanse me and change me to be more like you. And then walk forward in peace, knowing that that's what he does. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.